Amen. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. Reading, reading from Isaiah chapter 49, beginning in verse 8 and continuing to verse 26. So Isaiah chapter 49, I'll give you just a moment to turn there in your Bibles or on your device, wherever you have Scripture with you this morning, as we hear together from God's holy and inerrant and living Word. Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 8, Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear, they shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as ornaments. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now, you will, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallow you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated.
Perhaps you're aware that a healthy Christian life, if you've been in a discipleship a group or in Sunday school or in peer groups and we talk about what does the, the life of a Christian look like, what should it involve, and we think of things like um, helping others. It's critically important where Paul tells us to bear one another's burdens in love. We're, we're called in Scripture to, to serve one another in love. So helping others is an important aspect of a mature Christian life or or keeping, keeping God's commandments. For Christians even, we're, we're, we're called to walk in obedience, to keep God's commands that His Word would guide our path and our steps. Also, we, we know that it's important as believers that we, we give generously. We give generously not only of our resources, but of ourselves. The Christian life involves helping and um, keeping and, and giving. But I want you to know that the Christian, in the Christian life, we do those things not in order to be accepted by God, but we do them from a place of being accepted in God, already being accepted by God. We don't do those things in order to be accepted, but because we are accepted. Uh, Lori and I have been having a conversation lately how um, we are realizing how hardwired we can be in our marriage even, and in our relationships with our children or others, how hardwired we are to always be evaluating and judging. Evaluating ourselves, do I, do I deserve this person's love or do I deserve their acceptance? How we can evaluate others and so we're, we're having to say kind of to each other like, let's, let's move out of the courtroom here. You know, we move back into the courtroom and we wanna, we wanna kind of, we're on trial, either trying ourselves or the other person. But I, I, I want us to think about that today, that the Christian life isn't one in which we do these things in order to be accepted by God. We're not holding those things up as this is proof, this is evidence, Lord, that you should accept me, but it flows out of our acceptance with God. Isaiah 49 speaks to that. And I want to focus really in on the very first verse that we saw there, which is verse 8 in your text. And I want, you, I want to say, I want you to hear that our acceptance with God isn't in our serving and keeping and giving, but it's actually found in the servant who himself was helped and kept and given. That's the primary point that I want us to see today. Our deliverance, our deliverance was secured through the servant who was helped and kept and given. Now, a few questions to try to answer there. Deliverance from what? In, in verse uh, 8, you read, in a time of favor, and that word favor could be acceptance. In a time of acceptance, I have answered you in a day of salvation. The word salvation there, the, the Hebrew word is ishua, which we can translate deliverance. So, what have we been delivered or saved from and to? Well, if you kept reading in Isaiah 49, you would hear some things like, God is going to deliver those who were in prison. They were in prison, but they're going to be, uh, they're going to experience pasture land. So, in a place of confinement and a place of, of lack, they're going to be in this expansive open place where there's an abundance, or they're delivered from darkness to light. That language is in Isaiah 49. They're, uh, they're delivered from barrenness to abundance. The one who is barren is going to say, where did all these kids come from? 
or they're delivered from isolation to inclusion. They were once outside, but they're going to be brought near. Those who were once preyed upon by others, they're going to be provided for. Now, for the Israelites in Babylon, in Babylonian captivity, a deliverance for them was physical and geopolitical. There was, they needed to be brought out of Babylon. And, and in Isaiah 49, there, is, there are promises here that, that, are, that describe their freedom from captivity, their return to the land, their pilgrimage even, how they will, they will travel on pilgrimage back to the land, back to the place of, of promise the, and the repopulation of, of Judah and Jerusalem. Those things did take place. But if you read the accounts in Scripture or even those outside of Scripture, you kind of, you look at those accounts about how the Israelites did come back in part and, and the temple's rebuilt and the city is restored, but it never quite looked like what we read here. This depiction is something, it's something bigger and greater and, and bigger. Isaiah 49, you see, is describing a greater deliverance than just that from Babylon coming back to Jerusalem. There's something, something larger in view here. Now, there, are, there is language also in this chapter that it draws on the, the language of the Exodus. When God's people were delivered from Egypt, you know, and this brought out of bondage in Egypt and delivered even through their wanderings in the wilderness into the land of promise. So, so you hear things in, in Isaiah 49 like this, they shall feed along the ways They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water. Those are kind of allusions back even to that first exodus. Well, that exodus, that deliverance was an archetype. It's not just a physical redemption, but more importantly, spiritual deliverance from sin and death and the world. The greater deliverance that's in view in Isaiah 49 is from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God. That is what is ultimately being prophesied in Isaiah 49, and it will be secured by the Lord's servant. Stuart talked about that last week. You can go back and see the first seven verses. This is the Lord's servant who will come and do this. Uh, This servant, we're told, will be a light for the nations, for all the nations, so it's something much bigger than just the Israelites in captivity in Babylon. God's salvation would reach to the end of the earth. The salvation is worldwide. Look at verse 12 again in this morning's text. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west and these from the land of Syene. People don't even know where that is. <laughs> from an unknown place even, God is going to deliver people from around the world. This pilgrimage is something much, much bigger than just the Israelites returning from Babylonian captivity. Now, who is this servant? Who is the servant that's being described in Isaiah's four different servant songs? Well, from the womb, even before his birth, God gave this servant the name Jesus. That's the English pronunciation of the Greek word Jesus, which is itself the Greek form of the Aramaic word Yeshua, meaning he saves. Jesus was given this name because, as the angel told Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. 
The servant would be shown favor and and answered in the day of Yeshua, the day of salvation, and he would deliver God's people from their sin. He was the true light which gives light to everyone. Jesus came into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people. They didn't receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who believe in him are accepted. They're accepted just through faith in him. And he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen how Paul describes Jesus in Romans 15, verse 8 and 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to the Jew, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. He came as a servant so that we may glorify God for his mercy. Deliverance from condemnation because of God's mercy. This is acceptance. So what I want you to hear today is that for those who believe in Christ Jesus, court is no longer in session. It's no longer in session. You're accepted. There's a full acquittal. There's no more guilt. There's no condemnation for you. The judgment has already been declared and Jesus has faced God's judgment in your place in full. And his righteousness is yours in full. You are united to him. Court is closed for you. So we then can live out of that place of acceptance with God. For those who believe in him, he has given the right to become children of God, fully accepted, adopted in the beloved. Now, so we got some questions to answer. How was the servant helped? Verse 8 again, we read, and this is God speaking to the servant. This is, in a sense, God the Father speaking to the Son. He's saying, I have helped you. So how is it that the servant was helped? Well, he was helped in every way. And this is kind of surprising when we know that the servant was Jesus Christ, God the Son. Why in the world would God the Son need to be helped? Because he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He refused to exercise his authority or display his power independently. God the Son lived, he came and lived, fully man and fully God, totally dependent upon the Father. This is maybe the, in some ways the greatest part of his humiliation that he came, the one who is very God of very God and lived completely dependent on another. Jesus in John chapter 5 verse 19 said this, truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own accord. I rely completely on the Father. Andrew Murray wrote this about Jesus and his his surrender to the Father, his dependence on the Father. He said, the Son's dependence on the Father for each moment of his life was absolutely and intensely real. He counted it no humiliation to wait on him, that is the Father, for his commands. He rather considered it the highest blessedness 
to let himself be led and guided of the Father as a child. He lived like a child before God, totally reliant. And Jesus lived out this utter dependence on the Father by being committed to Scripture, both by living according to Scripture, but also in his determination to fulfill it. Think about Christ in his sufferings. In his sufferings, he was willing to endure everything, everything in order to fulfill Scripture. He prayed for the Father's will to be done no matter the cost to himself. No servant, no servant has ever lived who was as determined as Jesus to do what was asked of him. Did you hear that? No servant has ever lived who was as determined as Jesus to do what was asked of him. That is the assurance of your salvation, that Christ, the servant, came and was determined to do everything that was asked of him. He didn't didn't fail to do anything that the Father asked to secure your salvation. Not only that, but we're told that he was kept. Again, in verse 8, I've helped you, I will keep you. The word kept means to watch or guard, to preserve or maintain. So you could say, how was the servant, Jesus, the servant of the Lord, kept? Well, he was kept by God preserving the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God had said, it's going to be through your descendants that there will be a seed who will be a blessing to the nations. Not only that, Jesus was kept, in, in a sense, by God guarding David's life. As, as David was was guarded as he faced Goliath or Saul in his life, the Savior was being kept and preserved. He was kept and preserved when right after his birth, the angel appeared to Joseph. Remember saying, rise and take the child and go to Egypt for Herod is seeking to destroy his life. He was keeping the servant. He was preserving him. Or when he was 12 years old, this will make parents in the room shudder. Remember what happened when he was 12? They forgot him. (laughs) He got left in Jerusalem. It makes me feel a little better because we've forgotten a child or two once or twice in our lives. Could you imagine the horror if you realized you left your child in downtown Atlanta and you can't get him for a day? God preserved him. Or years later as he goes into the wilderness and, and fasts for 40 days and during that time he has all of the attention of Satan tempting him. He was the target and God preserved him. Or when he's in Nazareth, he goes to Nazareth and teaches and they were so put out with him that they took him outside the city and sought to throw him off a cliff. His own people, but he was preserved. Or when he went to the region of the Gerasenes and encountered a demoniac who no one could restrain, he was preserved. Or over and over in his life as the Pharisees sought to destroy him, he was preserved, he was kept, he was maintained. The servant had to be kept until it was time for him to be given. Now, I've got to admit, I am a terrible gift giver. I hate to admit that. I would love to be a good gift giver, but I'm not a good gift giver. If it was left to me, and our kids know this, Christmas just wouldn't happen. I don't think ahead far enough. I don't, I don't plan ahead. If, if I'm going to get somebody a gift, usually I think, hey, I need to get a gift. And so I go to a store and I just kind of look around until something strikes me. I'm so thankful that God blessed me with a wife who thinks ahead and buys gifts. And so sometimes there are Christmas gifts in our closet for months before, but they're there being kept and guarded from curious eyes sometimes 
They're being kept there until the day comes, the time comes to be given. The servant of the Lord was the perfect gift. He was the necessary gift to bring salvation and he was kept until it was time for him to be given. Back in Isaiah 49 verse 8, I will keep you and give you. How is it that the servant is given? Look at the verse. I will give you as a covenant to the people. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, is is an important chapter. They're all important, but in, in that chapter, we get an understanding of covenant theology. Westminster Confession, chapter 7, begins this way. The distance between God and the creature, so between God and people, is so great that although reasonable creatures owe obedience unto him as their creator, just by being reasonable, we should look at creation and say, wow, we owe obedience to this one who's created us. Yet, they could never have any fruition. That means like a realization of him as God, as their blessedness and reward. But by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. So if, if we were just left to ourselves, we would see and know we owe obedience to our creator, but we would have no fruition, no realization that our blessedness and hope is found in God, except that he has chosen to condescend to us, to cross that chasm by way of covenant. So what's a covenant? A covenant, it's, a, it's an arrangement between two or more parties. It establishes a relationship between them. So it's, it forms a relationship. Now, we often hear people talk about the covenant of marriage. The marriage retreat, the last couple of days, we spent a lot of time talking about that. There's a, a union between two people, and that union involves giving promises to one another, vows, we call them. And that covenant, that covenant between husband and wife, it's not imaginary. It's not just like ethereal. It's not just an idea. It has substance. We watched a video where John Piper talks about that. And he said, said this, that, that marriage, in marriage, your emotions and feelings for one another, they're going to come and go. They're going to rise and fall. But the covenant is unchanged. Marriages are anchored in the substance of the covenant that God has established. Now, there are many types of covenants, and they establish various relationships. But for today, I just, I want you, I want to stress that the the only reason we have any knowledge, any fruition of God as our blessedness and reward, as our salvation, as, as how we have acceptance, we could say, is as our hope for and realization of eternal life, it's by way of covenant, by this, by this relationship that God has condescended to, to express and form. And there are many covenants in Scripture, but they all fall under two, two primary covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The covenant of works, you could think of like that courtroom I was talking about, where, where we, we, we somehow have to, to prove that we, we merit God's love or we, we're able to maintain this relationship by what we do. It's a covenant of works. That covenant began and ended in the Garden of Eden. It, it started and concluded because Adam failed. 
It ended in the Garden of Eden. Every other covenant falls under the canopy of the covenant of grace. Now, that covenant of grace, we call it a covenant of grace because in it, God is establishing a relationship with sinners who can't merit His favor, who don't deserve to know Him, who have no claims to His love. But He graciously forms covenant with us. So, the servant... The Lord's servant is given as a covenant. The servant wasn't given just to provide the possibility of a relationship between God and his people, but as the covenant. He is the substance of the relationship between God and his own people. He is the substance. He is, as he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me because he is the substance of the relationship. And all who come to the Father through Jesus are accepted. None are turned away who come to the Father through the Son. So the only proper response to this good news is praise. Listen to verse 13. I read it a moment ago. Um, it was, it was in, in John's prayer, actually. I loved hearing uh, again. This is, this is the wonder of the, of the position that we have now because the servant has come. Verse 13, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break for, forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. God has done it. God has done it. This is worldwide praise because it's a worldwide salvation that God has provided. Now, you may hear that, and you may say, that is glorious news, but my circumstances don't feel and look that way. I don't feel like rejoicing. I don't feel like breaking into singing. I look around me, and I see uh, things in my own life or in the, in the world around me, or I see the condition, things that I, that I see even impacting the church that sadden me. Well, the people Isaiah was, in, was writing to encourage looked around them, and they saw the Babylonians flourishing, the city of Jerusalem and the temple in ruins. And, and maybe as you hear the gospel today, you look at your life and your circumstances, and you could and consider your feelings, and you say something like what they said in verse 14. You see their response in verse 14 as they looked at their condition? They said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Well, I want to, uh, we're going to close and, and look at some of this just in summary. But what we find in Isaiah 49, as God has made promises not just to us, but to the servant himself, but to, to Christ, how he's going to redeem and save people by him and through him, God then also invites us. He invites us to see reality with eyes of faith as we behold his promises. That's what God is doing over and over in Scripture. He's actually inviting us to look and see reality, not through our emotions, not through our circumstances, but through eyes of faith. He wants you to see what he sees. God wants you to hear him and see with eyes of faith, trusting him. He promises, and you find this in verse 15, I will not forget you. I will not forget you. 
And he implores you to look, not through your circumstances or your emotions. He wants you to see through eyes of faith. And he says, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. How could I forget you? Now, in the, in the coming servant songs, uh, there's no mention of his hands again. So I wonder if the original audience thought, what in the world? We're gonna be engraved in his hands, in the palms of his hands, but we know We know that our names were engraved with spikes that were driven through his hands. The wounds that Jesus invited Thomas to come and see and know, those were the very emblems of his love for you and the assurance that you will never be forgotten as we sing five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour, the wounds pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me, forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry, forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry, nor, nor let that ransom sinner die. Don't let that ransom sinner die. They plead for you. The church may seem to diminish at times. The gospel may appear fruitless in your life at times, but like we read in verse 12, God is going to bring people to himself Behold, God will gather his people from around the globe and the church may seem desolate. But as we read in verse 18, lift up your eyes of faith and see the peoples of the world coming to Christ, adorning the church like ornaments. Children born to bereaving parents will one day say, like we read in verse 20, this place is too narrow for me. Jerusalem has become too small. The the church seems too small. We we need more room. We have to keep growing. God has promised he will gather all of his own. God's church will continue to grow and his kingdom will expand as souls are delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son that he loves. He has set people on pilgrimage and he is bringing them home. But you may say, The the nations, I I, I looked at the news feed just this morning, there's a rejection of the gospel. People are becoming more and more antagonistic to Christ and to his church. Well, instead of looking at that, look through eyes of faith and hear what he says in verse 22. Behold, I will lift up my hands to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms. Your daughters shall be carried on their shoulder. Kings shall be your foster fathers." I love the fact that in his, in his introduction to a commentary on Isaiah, John Calvin challenged the king that he was writing to. He said, beware, God has called you to be a foster parent to Christians. You better watch out for them and take care of them. <laughs> God says, I will care for you. I will provide for you. This chapter even itself, it closes with God's promise to deal with the enemies of his people. He will not only deliver us, he will bring justice to those who oppress his bride. And all the world will know as this closes, all the world will know, I am the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. That's what God wants you to hear. That's what God wants us to see and trust with eyes of faith, whatever our circumstances are. I want to close this morning by turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible and would like to turn with me. Please do to 2 Corinthians 5. And what I want you to see is how the Apostle Paul applies Isaiah 49, verse 8. You'll hear it in the second verse of chapter 6. But this comes in the flow of Paul sharing the gospel with believers 
or with the church in Corinth, and even with those within the church maybe who are doubting or struggling to have faith and believe. I'll pick up in chapter 5, verse 17. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. God condescended in this. From God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. He created this relationship of of acceptance. Through himself, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, who we know is the servant of Isaiah 49, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Let me pause. In Christ... The court is closed. There is no condemnation. There's there's no fear of the lack of acceptance with God. So he goes on to say, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be brought into this relationship of acceptance and, and love that is unbreakable. He goes on, for our sake... He, that is God the Father, made him, that is God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, not only are we forgiven, but the righteousness of God himself, the righteousness of God the Son imputed to us. And then here's where Paul gets to Isaiah. Chapter six, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't just hear it, but believe it. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the day of salvation. Hear, believe, come and see with eyes of faith what God has done and what he will do for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're the servant who came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. We thank you that we have these great promises. Give us eyes of faith to believe them and to trust and to walk in light of them. Help us, Lord Jesus, even today to see you in your glory more fully, to see the, the height and width and depth and breadth of your love in, a greater, in, in greater dimensions, that we would rest in that. Do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.